0: This week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, Jay and I take a look at the Tim Leisner SEC FCPA settlement, which was announced this week. We take a look at a couple of articles from Allie McDavid over at um, Compliance Week on the Compliance lessons from Theranos and Carol Brockmeyer's seven step approach to third party management. We consider whether or not Mexico is getting serious about fighting corruption. We take a look at cultural lessons from Coca Cola. Jay looks at the extension, or rather the expansion, of the independent compliance integrity monitor. We ask what is the intersection of corporate oversight and disobedience. We take a look at cyber enforcement and FTC expectations. Going forward, we consider the Department of Justice's new cooperation policy on trade sanctions and export control. Can you use insurance to protect you from populism? And review the five part podcast series currently running on popcorn and compliance on the intersection of Star Wars and compliance. In honor of the opening of the latest and final episode of the nine part Star Wars series, The Rise of Skywalker. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, back with J. Rose and Mr. Monitors for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 184 for the week ending uh, December 20, 2019, the Rise of Skywalker edition, as we are both eagerly awaiting So you see the final installment of the nine-part Star Wars saga. Uh, We step back to consider some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, what has uh, caught your eye over the past week?
1: So, uh, number one with a bullet coming to us from the FCPA blog, and also you took a couple swipes at it this uh, week. Uh, Tim Leisner settles FCPA charges with the SEC, the former chairman of Goldman Sachs in Southeast Asia, settled civil FCPA charges with the SEC on Monday for his role in the looting of the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund 1MDB. The SEC charged Leisner with violating the anti-bribery, internal accounting controls, and books and records provisions of the FCPA. He agreed to a permanent ban from the securities industry and to a disgorgement of $43.7 million with an M. The SEC said the disgorgement was offset by amounts Leisner paid under a $43.7 million forfeiture order that was part of the plea that he made last year with the DOJ. In a related settlement this year with Federal Reserve, Leisner paid a civil penalty of $1.425 million. The SEC Monday did not impose any further penalties. Uh, this has been a matter that we've been speaking about for the last couple of years, and uh, Tom, we have your favorite financier, J-Lo, that usually comes up. uh, And two really nice pieces that you wrote for your FCPA Compliance and Ethics blogs. You uh, compared Leicester to two of the holiday season's favorite animated folks, The Grinch and Frosty the Snowman. Can you tell us a little bit uh, where you see the
0: parallels? Sure. With uh, The Grinch, uh, perhaps my father's favorite character of all time, who he really aspired to be, the Grinch. Um, and uh, Leisner certainly has been the Grinch for Goldman Sachs, uh, although in reverse, he originally was uh, the bringer of the good news and the big money. Uh, of course, it turned out that that big money had cost. And then he flipped and uh, flipped on Goldman. And perhaps we can uh, go into the uh, veiled land of the future to speculate what Goldman may be paying in total fines and penalties, but uh, reports uh, are talking about $2 billion. Um, so uh, very Grinch-like, uh, Leisner has made uh, for a miserable Christmas for the folks at Goldman Sachs. But the thing that really struck me, Jay, is there has been a fair amount of commentary on Leisner. Obviously, uh, the book written around uh, the entire fiasco at 1MDB and the bond deals that he was involved in. And what I would really like to to do is go to part two of my blog post series um, where we talked about really two characters, Frosty the Snowman, and then for uh, every American teenager who ever had to read The Great Gatsby, uh, The Eyes of Dr. Eckleburg*. Uh, how do you deal with a partner-level executive who not only engages in lying, cheating, and stealing, but um, pays bribes, Uh, in violation of your company's code of conduct, in violation of your company's policies and procedures, and to lies directly to your face about that. And that's really, I think, a big struggle. Um, It really doesn't matter how robust your system is if you you have people like that employed. And that's really the first lesson. Uh, If someone's in their past, has done shady work, um, here you can think of a former Houstonian, Ken Lay. Uh, who in the 80s uh, was uh, clearly engaging in unethical business behaviors. And it led to the catastrophicness of um, Enron, of course, which led to Sarbanes-Oxley directly. So you can see with uh, someone of Leisner's character being moved up the ranks at Goldman because he got deals done. And obviously how he got those done was the biggest problem. So it really comes down to hiring and putting – uh, into practice, your uh, code of conduct, your business ethics, and not to hire the kinds of people who cut corners and not to promote the kinds of people who cut corners. In the eyes of Dr. Eckelberg, uh, for those who have forgotten their high school Gatsby, was the uh, optometrist's uh, billboard sign that was on the way from Long Island into the city where uh, Tom, not Tom Fox, Tom the character Uh, went in for trysts with his uh, mistress. And the eyes were certainly a a commentary, I think, on uh, the sinful nature of Tom and Daisy's life. But uh, the eyes for this purpose represent a second set of eyes. And a second set of eyes, whether you want to delve into your inner Ronnie Reagan, trust but verify, you have to put a second set of eyes on the entire, entire process And I thought it was really driven home, at least in the uh, Leisner 1MDB J-Lo imbroglio, when um, under Project Maximus, uh, one of the three bond deals that uh, Goldman Sachs led for 1MDB, Leisner was asked directly whether J-Lo was involved in the project. Leisner told the uh, Goldman Sachs Risk Management Committee tasked with reviewing the deal affirmatively that Lowe was not involved in the project, although Leisner and other senior executives at Goldman at that time knew that that was false. So once again, um, uh, you can't take a statement like that directly um, as much as we want to trust our partners and our business associates You have to uh, trust but verify, and that's something that um, Goldman Sachs did not do, whether they turned a blind eye, engaged in conscious indifference, or whether they just got hoodwinked. Nevertheless, uh, they're still on the hook uh, for that. So a couple of important lessons from a story we have visited, Jay, quite often, and that has been visited and revisited, and frankly, that was the reason for Frosty. Frosty the Snowman, because uh, he uh, famously announced he will be back again someday. And uh, in the person of Tim Leisner, he's been back over the past week.
1: So, uh, next up, we've got a couple great articles coming to us from Allie McDevitt. Uh, she writes for Compliance Week. And recently, Compliance Week had a third party conference up in San Francisco. What are the two articles we're talking about, Tom?
0: So there was a couple of articles, uh, as you would allude to, because of the title of the conference, Jay, around third-party management. And the first was from uh, a speech from Mary Rentumas, And Mary is uh, at Wells Fargo um, uh, now. And um, she talked about reading and studying uh, the Theranos scandal Uh, led by the book, Bad Blood by Jan Carrey, award-winning book, I would note, as lessons for her uh, journey at uh, Wells Fargo. And before she took the job, she said she did a a fair amount of internal due diligence at Wells Fargo to really find out if they were ready to make the changes that they would need around uh, culture and risk. But um, she summarized her tips for compliance practitioners around uh, third parties as uh, following. One, create a mission of your organization and the value you bring to the firm. Two, participate in your business's planning sessions, ask questions. Three, build a strong front door to your third-party process. Four, make the templates and tools easy. Five, establish clear roles. Um, who really owns the risk of a third party? Six, follow the data you when you provide it to a third party. And seven, connect the dots with third-party defend- dependency process mappings. So uh, interesting about not only her approach uh, being somewhat wary of going to work at Wells Fargo without being really satisfied that uh, they were um, read, ready, willing, and able to change their culture, and then uh, moving to do that. The next up was an article about Kara Brockmeyer, former head of the uh, SEC's FCPA unit and now a partner at De- and um, in uh, New York or Washington, excuse me. And she gave um, a seven step up for compliance officers to strengthen third party compliance. Number one, tally and rank all third parties, i.e. risk rank. Two, perform an appropriate due diligence. Uh, Three, document uh, near and dear to my heart the specific services provided by the third parties. Uh, Four, make sure you understand your company's process for managing the third parties. Uh, as I often say, it's the management of the relationship is where the rubber hits the road. Step five, ensure your organization has a system to handle red flags as they appear and employees train to recognize and escalate them. Six, make sure you have contractual processes in place. That means compliance terms and conditions in your contract. And then step seven, uh, At the uh, after the relationship has been executed or the contract has been executed, monitor, monitor, monitor. So, Uh, When someone of Kara Brockmeyer's uh, gravitas speaks, you really need to listen uh, because it's clear insight into how the regulators uh, may be thinking. So um, great articles from Allie. Uh, She's a great new addition to Compliance Week and frankly looking forward to uh, uh, what she comes up with. Certainly the excellence of Compliance Week is well known within the compliance community.
1: Uh, So next up, we have another story coming to us from the FCPA blog. This is from Luis Stanton Martinez-Corez, and he is a partner with the Mexico-based law firm of Rich & Muller. And uh, in March of this year, uh, the chief anti-corruption prosecutor of Mexico was appointed. Few would have been, uh, few would have bet that within the first eight months, she would already have 680 cases under investigation. Luz Miangos Borja, uh, brought to the position a record of outstanding academic and public service. She holds a Ph.D. in economics from the Universidad uh, de Madrid, and uh, she's a Fulbright scholar, for, and she did her postdoctoral studies at Yale. Here are three of the main challenges that she has faced in her new post. First, the transition from the former attorney general office to the new chief prosecutor's office. What may seem a simple change in name and acronym Really implies a complete overhaul of the top prosecuting office in the country. Second, the creation of the sorry for of the office for the first chief uh, anti-corruption prosecutor. The office arguably is one of the most important in the administration of a president, and has vowed to make fighting corruption its priority starting from zero. And number three, third, the company is still in the grips of a major change for the criminal procedural system. In 2015, the country's criminal procedure system moved from mostly written process to an oral process with an opportunity criteria to benefit collaborators. The effects of 680 investigations to date under the watch of the new prosecutor will continue to uh, make ripples and add to the high-profile prosecution of cases made. It may be fair to say that 2020 will be a pivotal year in Mexico's corporate criminal investigations and enforcement of crimes related to corruption, a year in which many eyes will be focused on the first chief anti-corruption prosecutor. So uh, it's a great article, and it's great to see the uh, progress that has been made over the past year.
0: So, Jay, uh, next up, we had a very interesting article on the risks of undervaluing a focus on culture. And I know... Uh, Culture is something that you talk about, you write about, your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors continually talk to us about the importance. And so I was really intrigued by this article, and frankly it went in a couple of different directions, so I'd like to spend a little bit of time on it. It uh, was around the decision of uh, New Coke, and certainly um, you're old enough to remember New Coke, and I am as well. Um, It was an unmitigated disaster for Coca-Cola. Uh, But uh, I'd always wondered what led to the decision to create new Coke. And it came because the bean counters at Coca-Cola thought that they could increase efficiency, i.e. cut costs, by moving to a different formula for Coca-Cola. But most importantly, they believed that consumers' taste, their taste buds, not their overall emotional taste, had changed. And they wanted a different tasting Product And they ran, of course, numerous taste tests to confirm this. Well, when they uh, – and I remember at the time, some of the advertising agencies who did the uh, testing for um, New Coke uh, wrote uh, articles along the lines of, if we had known they were going to quit selling the old Coke, we would have approached this very different ways, Um and at the time I thought they were just doing the CYA exercise but it turned out that uh, Coca-Cola management at that time had completely discounted the taste if I can move away from taste buds or the emotion people had around Coca-Cola the original Coca-Cola formula. So when they rolled out New Coke and said they were doing away with Coca-Cola, that's when the consumers revolted. And I can remember one of the best op-eds I saw at the time was the um, Communist Party in Cuba, (coughs) excuse me, wrote an op-ed to say that this was the first strike of the proletariat to take over the United States by the revolt against the purveyors of New Coke. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. The article says that New Coke... uh, the losses from the new Coke uh, disaster were only about $34 million, But they pointed out uh, another uh, uh, cost, which I'd re- really not considered, which was that um, Coca-Cola, by having to refocus on uh, the original Coke formula and that their um, focus on efficiency and tweaking costs for marketing – uh, it was late to the game uh, for literally two decades in rolling out new products that met consumers' demand for more healthy and variety in drinks so that the actual exponential cost because of the cultural failure was much, much more. And they uh, so they suggest a, a common sense test for culture and give that, um, uh, if you want to uh, take a look at that, a uh, forced ranking of your cultural issues. But I thought it was a really interesting way, Jay, to talk about how your internal culture can be at odds with your customers. And that the revolt for for people like us was that we didn't want to lose uh, or have the original formula Coke taken away. Perhaps they could have had a new flavor and it may not have done well, but it wouldn't have been the unmitigated marketing disaster that supplanted the Edsel as number one in all-time business disaster. So Uh, Interesting way to think about culture, interesting way to see how if you don't manage culture, it can really hurt you uh, in the pocketbook.
1: And uh, it may have been a cautionary tale that maybe the folks at Boeing should have considered when they wanted to uh, cut their costs on the 737 MAX and only have one sensor instead of two. Well put. Uh, This week in my uh, ongoing series on Corporate Compliant Insights, I continue to look back over the past 15 years of monitors and affiliated monitors, uh, the company headquartered in Boston, where I work, that's uh, headed by my colleague, uh, Vin Diciani. And this week, I shared how the use of independent monitors has expanded over these past 15 years. The increase has been seen in the private and public sectors, domestically and internationally. The U.S. Department of Justice began using monitors in the mid-2000s, and a money laundering prosecution and public construction projects. Independent monitors were also starting to be used by a whole wide variety of other federal agencies, ranging from the Department of Transportation to the Department of Defense. AMI has provided independent monitoring services in a wide variety of situations, including regulatory matters and white-collar matters at the federal and state level. AMI's work has expanded into areas as diverse as prisons, alcoholic beverages, and the cannabis regulatory issues. Vindy Siani, the founder and president of Affiliated Monitors, noted that independent monitors come in all shapes and sizes. You could work on a gigantic international, a multinational company, a mid-sized or small-sized company, or with individuals. So each case is very different. Each case will have a certain set of conditions or criteria that need to be monitored. Uh, One of the interesting first matters that uh, Affiliated worked on is that there was a company in Long Island that had hired and employed disabled people, which is great. The problem was the company got into hot water with the state EEOC function for equal employment violations. The state attorney general's office was in a quandary as it did not want to close down one of the last manufacturing companies in New York. However, the AG had to deal with these realistic problems and that the company was having with the EEOC. AMI came up with a model under which the company implemented an ethics and compliance program to satisfy the state regulator. The bottom line, as Annie said, is that AMI is comfortable monitoring almost any situation because of the years of experience doing it. I hope you join me next week, or actually after the holidays, as part four of my series continues on CCI when we explore the combination of independent monitors and compliance and ethics programs.
0: Jay, next up, uh, we found an article, or at least uh, we, our uh, eyes were caught by an article about cyber enforcement and the FTCs compliance expectations around cybersecurity. It comes to us from uh, NYU's uh, Compliance and Enforcement blog. And the FTC uh, has put requirements in nearly every settlement reached around uh, cybersecurity uh, in 2019. And these include the following. Put your cybersecurity program content implementation and maintenance in writing. Two, design specific employees to coordinate and be responsible for your program. Three, conduct assessments of internal and external risks to security. Four, regularly test and monitor the effectiveness of your program. Five, evaluate, adjust based on your testing and monitoring any material changes to your business operations. Six, assess at risk and design safeguards for prevention, detection, and response to attacks or failures. Seven, design reasonable steps to se- select, retain, Service providers. And then finally, eight, contract with service providers to help implement and maintain appropriate safeguards. Uh, Although phrased a little bit differently, all of those will be familiar to every compliance practitioner. And I think as the compliance remit expands, uh, companies need to, or rather, compliance officers need to uh, start becoming aware of uh, compliance around cybersecurity. This is not simply the purview of IT anymore. Uh, If you have a failure, your board may come down to you, Mr. or Ms. Compliance Officer, and say, where were you? Why weren't you overseeing our policies, programs, and procedures around it? So um, a great way to think about it and uh, an excellent article over on the Compliance and Enforcement
1: blog. Not to be outdone by the folks uh, down south at NYU, Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulation has a piece to us on Corporate Oversight and Disobedience, this is written by Professor Elizabeth Pullman from the Loyola Law School, and it's a it's part of the paper that she has written in the forthcoming issue of the Vanderbilt Law Review. Over a decade has passed since landmark Delaware decisions on corporate oversight obligations and with virtually no cases going to trial resulting in liabilities. Scholars have puzzled over the means to have the potential for corporate accountability and Duty of goodwill. Recent decisions in Marshan versus Barnhill and in the Clovis on Ecology case have raised questions anew, adding to the small number of Delaware cases that have survived motions to dismiss. First, the state corporate law expresses fidelity to legal compliance through dual requirements of obedience and oversights that are lodged with the duty that are lodged within the duty of good faith and cannot be exculpated. The obligation of oversight concerns the monitoring function of the board of directors to ensure the legal compliance actions within the corporation as the court of chancery suggested in the Caremark and the Delaware Supreme validated Supreme Court validated in Stone versus Ritter. The second article examines the body of Delaware law concerning the Caremark oversight obligation and argues that uh, through stringent judicial review or pleadings, it has become functionally linked with its duty of legal obedience. Reviewing these cases reveals that the corporate law school law takes legal obedience as a strict requirement, and the Caremark doctrine creates a mandate for the board to put in place and monitor the systems of compliance. In practice, Delaware courts have seemingly prioritized giving directors broad latitude to take business risks by drawing line of legal risk, despite the possibility that both types of activity create social value or harm depending on the circumstances. Moreover, examining Delaware's case law reveals that courts have stringently reviewed the pleadings for Caremark's claims, requiring particularized actual allegations of conscious disregard that that resembles intent to violate the law or acquiesce in misconduct. Bringing together these threads of discussion, the article concludes with the observation that corporate law's public regarding commitment to the rule of law supports accountabilities in these instances of disobedience, as well as more broadly when fiduciaries act with ignorance or uh, uh, unawareness. So it's an extremely interesting article, and we link to it in the show notes.
0: Jay, next up we have uh, the Gerber uh, 2019 uh, Betty Steed Award winner for Excellence in Compliance, Jim Deloach from Protivity, with uh, an always excellent article from us around managing organizational culture as an enterprise asset. And he takes a look at a survey, 2019 Protivity, North Carolina State University ERM initiative a global survey of boards and C-suite executives, and really looking at their role in uh, culture, uh, nurturing culture in a changing environment, understanding and monitoring culture, and then in measuring culture, and uh, at the end of the article, uh, Jim lists uh, four key questions that uh, for senior executives and boards, and I, I think they're worth a read. So, number one, can the board and CEO agree on the current state of corporate culture and whether it's aligned with the overall enterprise stat- strategy and core values? Two, how do we measure culture? How do we monitor and improve culture over time? Three, are there any subcultures that are in the organization with each other? And there always are subcultures, but do they uh, present conflicts uh, for the organization. And finally, uh, number five is the culture in the boardroom and the C suite fit for purpose in today's environment? And Jay, you alluded to Boeing a little bit earlier. Clearly, that culture is not fit for purpose uh, in today's environment, as was uh, Theranos and a wide variety of others. So, great article by Jim Deloach, one of the top thinkers around, and someone that uh, I uh, definitely uh, follow and uh, use as a mentor. So uh, check it out over on Culprit Compliance Insights. So
1: uh, next up, we have an article from the coolest guy in compliance, our colleague Matt Kelly, uh, on his uh, website, theradicalcompliance.com. Matt takes a look at cooperation policy for sanctions violations. Compliance officers have a new cooperation credit policy from the Justice Department to consider, This one addresses sanctions and export control issues, and it's slightly different enough from the other cooperation policies that we've seen through the Trump administration, and we need to give this one a little bit more uh, attention. The policy was announced last Friday by David Burns, Deputy Assistant AG, for the Justice Department's National Security Division. It hits many of the same notes as the department's FCPA corporate enforcement policy from 2017. Foremost, businesses looking for leniencies over sanctions issues should voluntarily self-report their misconduct, cooperate fully with any investigate, and remediate any control weaknesses. So Matt asked, what's new? First, in the exchange for this cooperation, the National Security Division will be predisposed to offer a non-prosecution agreement and no monetary penalties. So right off the bat, the policy for sanctions is not as generous as its counterpart for FCPA, which presumes an outright outright declination. Second, the cooperation policy applies only if you disclose your sanctions of misconduct to the Justice Department. Reporting the misconduct to other civil agencies, such as OFAC, will not work. Third, and as always, the Justice Department only presumes it will offer an NPA and no penalties absent any... uh, Absolutely, any uh, aggravating factors. Sorry about that. So, here are our quick recap of the aggravating factors in the sanctions. Uh, number one, knowing involvement of upper management in the criminal conduct. Two, repeated violations, including similar administrative or criminal violations in the past. Three, exports to a foreign terrorist organization or specifically designated global terrorist. Four, expert, exports of items controlled for nuclear nonproliferation. Five, exports of items known to be used in the construction of weapons of mass destruction. And finally, six, exports of military items to a hostile fo- foreign po- power. Those first three items we've seen before as aggravating factors in the FCPA. The last three items, however, are more about the actual goods involved in the transaction, which usually isn't a big concern in our FCPA world. So a compliance program trying to avoid these aggravating factors and sanctions risk will need to be much more adept at monitoring high-risk goods that a company sells. Matt's other question is how the Justice Department and other regulators will define an effective compliance program. Are these the same criteria we've seen before? resources dedicated to compliance, corporate culture, reporting structure for compliance personnel, and so forth. But in an effective cons- sanctions compliance program is really dictated by the Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, and it's, who has published its own guidance and effective. So when we say a company must have an effective compliance program by the time of resolution, we're really talking about two interconnected layers of effectiveness, the OFAC view, and the Justice Department. Going forward, it will be interesting to see how these two different regulators, regulators take a view of this issue.
0: So, Jay, uh, I'd like to close our articles with one that I thought was uh, a little bit different but very interesting. And um, it comes to us from the d Diary, although not from Kevin LaCroix, as a guest post by Liam Fitzpatrick. And he talks about companies... Uh, largely UK-based multinationals, but I think it uh, is applicable really for for any other uh, multinational in managing political risk in the age of populism. And I thought that was an interesting way to focus on it. Perhaps the uh, Irish definition of populism is a little bit different than the American definition, which uh, now appears to be uh, white nationalism and America first-ism. But he talks about protecting your company through insurance. And uh, I I was a little bit intrigued by this, but it's directors and officers liability insurance. When your company comes under attack from uh, populism uh, or the America firsters, Uh, it can be whether uh, you fall afoul of the Me Too movement. It can be if um, you engage in criminal conduct, such as an FCPA violation, or your company just goes belly up. So uh, I thought it was a really interesting way to think about how to protect your company from political risk through the risk management strategy of insurance. And it may not be the first choice you might make, but it's certainly a uh, a, a very well-known and potential um, risk management strategy that you can uh, utilize. So interesting guest post, a lot to think about. It's a short article. And I would just commend that to you if if you want to think about risk and risk management in a different way.
1: So on this part of the podcast, we usually uh, turn to a series that Tom has had on the uh, internet over the week. And Tom and I were both able to indulge our uh, inner baby Yoda and take a look at some of the past Star Wars leading up to today's release of uh, the – final installment, part nine. So uh, what did you, what did we talk about this week, Tom?
0: Well, Jay, we started, of course, with uh, where it all started, A New Hope. Now, episode four, <clears throat> The Empire Strikes Back, episode five, episode six, The Return of the Jedi. Then we jumped to episode seven, The Force Awakens. And uh, just during the time, uh, or on Friday, rather, The Last Jedi posts. And uh, it was a, a great way to review the intersection of Uh, Star Wars and compliance. Um, I always enjoy visiting with you from your perspective as a recovering screenwriter. And uh, we had uh, uh, some interesting dialogue, I thought, about how you might approach um, not only some of the key scenes uh, that were written in Star Wars, but the overall hero's journey. And most interestingly, in today's um, podcast on uh, The Last Jedi, how how do you deal with... um, not canon, but uh, cultural iconical, iconism uh, when you're writing for a series that is beloved and is well known. And and how do you bring a fresh set of eyes and a fresh story, uh, yet move that story forward? So uh, I really found a lot of different lessons. So we had, did have some specific lessons, of course, um, from each, but uh, lots of leadership lessons and uh, a lot of joy of, of, being forced to, as I told my wife, well, we have to rewatch them. It's not that I want to; it's just that, you know, it's part of work. So, uh, what <laughs> what what better job can you have than rewatching Star Wars and then podcasting about it?
1: So, uh, Tom, we, we uh, you shared with me that you're going to have a Saturday screening uh, for Mrs. Rosen and the Compliance Twins. We are going to wait until the week of school vacation. So. Uh, I guess sometime in the next few days, we'll be coming back with our own review. Uh, what is the year end schedule going to be looking like on the Compliance Podcast Network? And what do we have in, in store over the next couple of weeks?
0: So um, I'm announcing today that uh, starting January 1, I am bringing back 31 days to a more effective compliance program. So I've revamped that series. Each day in January, I will have a podcast a uh, short recitation of one thing you can do to improve your program. Uh, it's going to be a, a podcast with a blog post each day. Um, I told my wife the last time I did a daily series to shoot me the next time I thought of it, but I decided that um, it was something I wanted to do for January. So we're going to start off with uh, really what the compliance practitioner needs, needs to take away from the year in uh, DOJ, uh, FCPA enforcement and commentary, and then we'll take some specific um, uh, guidelines that came out from the DOJ over the next month. So that's really uh, the biggest announcement. Um, the uh, uh, podcast network will be uh, intermittently posting. Uh, we're going to post Monday because I have uh, part two of my great interview with James Kukios on the always great Morrison and Forster anti-corruption international newsletter. And we're going to take a look at the October issue. Uh, then uh, we take a look at the, um, Another lessons learned from uh, um, Adam Newman, and we work for Twelve O'clock High, my podcast on business leadership. Uh, I doubt it will be a big news week next week for FCPAJ, but um, with the rumors around Goldman Sachs, and there, I'm sure there'll be something that we can uh, come up to uh, with to talk about that will uh, catch our eyes. So, I hope our listeners will be back with us uh, next Friday uh, as well.
1: You know the calendar year is still open, Tom. So uh, it's there's always a little bit of room to uh, cramp through one two billion dollar settlement. So uh, uh, I, I'm sure uh, we we might get one final FCPA Christmas present before the year ends.
0: You want to take us out on that note, Jay?
1: I was going to say uh, on behalf of my colleague Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 184 for the week ending December 20th, the rise of Skywalker edition. Uh, Once again, we appreciate you spending some time with us uh, every week or weekend and uh, we wish you all happy holidays and we'll be back with you real soon.
0: Hello everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this week in FCPA. If you have any questions, On uh, the topics from this week's episode, you can email Jay at Rosen at AffiliatedMonitors.com. You can email me at TFOX at TFOXLaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week when we take up some of the shortened week's top compliance and ethics stories. I hope that you and your family will have a most joyous holiday season and Merry Christmas next week, and that you will uh, be safe over these holidays. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.